if you believe that buses are the lifeblood for employment, for recreation, for commerce, for education, all that stuff, then it's money well spent. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. Welcome to a special extra edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. The National Bus Strategy was published last week, and it was billed as a revolution for the bus industry. Is it really as transformational as all that? To find out, I've got together with Leon Daniels, my fellow podcaster from the Lunch with Leon podcast, but also formerly Managing Director of Surface Transport at Transport for London. Few people know the bus industry like Leon Daniels, so we got straight down to business to discuss the bus strategy. First of all, what's his initial take? There wasn't a wailing and a gnashing of teeth from the industry. The the major groups' share prices stayed up. Um, CPT was broadly supportive. It didn't get the the raspberry that I was expecting. I was surprised the share prices didn't move at all. I mean, you could you can read this as good news and you can read it as bad news, but it, whatever else it is, it's certainly big news. You'd think that something would have happened, that the share prices stayed absolutely level. But I think part of that might be because of this fact that it's it's got this huge mass of extraordinarily good news. I mean, the stuff about bus priority and bus lanes, you kind of have to read, you know, I read that bit three times because you think, I, I, I can't believe I'm reading this. This I'd never thought I'd read something like a, like this in a government document. So that's the good news. On the other hand, equally, um, <clears throat> where's the money? Um, and you kind of take those two things in balance and you think, well, you know, we kind of might end up back where we started. It's not, it's not guaranteed to be as great as it looks at first sight, I thought. No, I mean, we mustn't forget uh, the Department for Transport like all government departments, is in the middle of a one-year budget uh, because the spending review was postponed until later this year. The very most that uh, the bus strategy can give us is funding till the end of the parliament, which is only 2024, uh, which is not a long time in the sort of regions we're talking about. And I think I'm right in saying that I think with the exception of London, some of the electrification proposals which are coming forward as part of the net zero side of this will be 2022-23 before they hit the streets. So firstly, I hope the money that's promised in here gets guaranteed. That's the bit that concerned me. We'll come on to some of the truly extraordinarily marvellous stuff in a minute, and there is that in there. But the word discretionary um, was used quite a few times before the word funding, and it is a strategy. And I've written strategies for organisations before. And normally a strategy describes the funding and what it's going to be spent on. And this didn't. It just said several times, you know, Father Christmas Boris has brought three billion pounds and we're not going to tell you where it's going or how it's going to be allocated or even give any indication really of what the criteria are. And money that has no allocation and has not been announced always feels vulnerable to future cuts. So I don't doubt for a split second that it is intended that there shall be three billion. And the prospect of three billion is going to dangle in front of the industry and cause an awful lot of good behaviour for the next year. The big fear, of course, is will it disappear? Yeah. And let's face it, governments, and I'm using the plural, governments have got a pretty crummy track record for devolving 100% of the responsibility together with 80% of the funding. 
and left the devolved authority, whether it's a metropolitan county or a local authority or whatever, with all of the burden of doing the job, or, or an executive agency for that matter, all the burden of doing the job with only some of the money, and that money then gets sliced and sliced over time till eventually, as like we had in buses, um, the amount of money spent by local authorities on socially necessary services has dwindled alarmingly over the period that it was in place, and many local authorities spend nothing at all. And there's for authorities and operators in areas where there's an established partnership in place, this is unambiguously fantastic news. They can see the direction of travel the government wants, they're promised funding and they're promised powers, and they can now get back into the room they used to being in together, probably Zoom nowadays, and start working up a whole load of new detailed plans. Fantastic. And if you, know, you live in Brighton or Burnley, you're in that situation and that's all good. But if you live in Luton, where you have a council without a single person with the word bus in their job title anywhere in the council and an operator um, in a reaver that's hollowed out vast amounts of its management. Both of those organizations to deliver on the aspirations of this plan are going to have to go and recruit people. You, know, you can't plan a Luton bus improvement plan with no one doing it. And they're going to have to sign off on headcount without any guarantee of funding. And I don't know if they will or not. I mean, I really don't know if they will. Are they? If they don't, then these enhanced partnerships that are promised are going to be stillborn. They're just not going to, I mean, they might happen, but they won't say anything. But if they do, they're both being asked to take a big risk on a discretionary fund that may or may not happen. No, and, and that 25 million that's set aside in order to give the local authorities some resource and capability sounds like a lot of money until you divide it between all the local authorities across the country. Yeah, 25 divided by 81 um, suddenly doesn't get you very far. No, uh, so... And I am worried. So I've, I've tried to work it out in my mind uh, with the help of others, because there's a bit of a matrix, isn't there? Like good local authority and good operator, as you've described, this is music to their ears. But there are also good operator and bad local authority, good local authority and bad operator, and bad operator and bad local authority, for whom this is... So we just really talked about the last one, didn't we? What happens if the local authority's got no money uh, and the operator just gets on with what it wants? But in the middle of that, there's another... There's a lot of talking to be done between people who haven't been communicating very well for many years, I thought. Absolutely. I mean, the one, well, not the one good thing, one of many good things is at least it's very clear what they should be talking about. And that helps. The promise of not just warm words, but statutory powers and statutory guidance on bus lanes. I mean, almost, I, I found it slightly hard to believe the aspirations were so expansive and the requirements on local authorities so comprehensive that it almost felt slightly unbelievable you know a bit like if you you know if your dad says he'll give you a pound if you're tired of your room you're tired of your room but if your dad says he'll give you a million pounds if you're tired of your room you don't bother and it felt a bit like that uh, it's all you know, a bus lane on every road with congestion and space for one was promised and that it it's wow Really? Yeah. Wow. And especially where, for those many local authorities, where there's not strong political leadership, because we know plenty of local authorities, don't we, where the balance of power hinges on just one or two seats. And these, these drift between Labour and Liberal or Liberal Democrat and Conservative, often at elections. So we have plenty of places where there are strong Labour, Labour local authorities, there are strong Conservative authorities. But these ones that drift in and out, Frankly, something like a bus lane, an unpopular bus lane, is enough to push the balance of power out, isn't it? Because 
there's an uprising, um, there's an election, and the people that put it in get voted out and it drifts the other way. So I'm, I'm particularly worried for the local authorities where there's no strong political leadership. There is one good thing, however, which is that this government, in a way that no government I can think of previously, has weaponized dishonesty as a tool of political leadership. And for the purposes of this, it's quite useful. We can see what happens or what's going to happen because we've seen it happen before. So a year ago, the government published this equally extraordinary, expansive, earth-shattering statutory guidance on bike lanes and low-traffic low, low neighbourhoods. And again, I looked at this and thought, you know, bloody hell, you know, this is this is extraordinary. You know, bike lanes everywhere, close all the roads to cars. And, they, and dutifully, all the local authorities got on with it and did what they were told and put bike lanes down and closed the roads to cars. And then as soon as the people started complaining, um, cabinet ministers, I think, well, they shouldn't have done that. We didn't tell them to do that. While at the same time, ratcheting up the guidance and making it tighter and tighter and telling them to keep doing it. And previous governments have often not touched this kind of difficult stuff because they fear the blowback. Um, whereas this government has got this kind of extraordinary ability to look both ways simultaneously and to instruct people to do it and then sort of just walk away from the negatives and not own the policy. And actually, in, in a weird sort of way, that's quite helpful to this. They'll, they tell everyone to put the bus lanes down. They do it in the form of statutory guidance, which means you know, local authorities can't ignore it because they'll, they'll be taken to JR if they do. Um, but at the same time, the government's able to just say, nothing to do with us, nothing to hear, mate. We didn't do that. No. Well, that will be interesting, the proof of that pudding, won't it? Because, frankly, I think, and we've seen, haven't we? We've seen the withdrawal of bus lanes from perfectly reasonable cities that really deserve them because the political climate turned against them. But this will be across the country now because at the end of the day, road space is finance. And by the time you've allocated some of it to cycling and allocated some of it to buses, there is no doubt there will be congestion. Now, in my book, I don't much mind about that because from my traffic management experience, uh, if you make the journeys sufficiently awkward for people to make, they'll do something different. So in the longer term, the traffic does get dispersed elsewhere. But in the short term, we'll have the pictures that we've always seen, haven't we? We'll see the empty bike lane, the empty bus lane, and the long line of general traffic. Now, I quite like those photographs in a way because I always argue that in the case of the bus, you can't see a bus in the bus lane because it's already got to the place it's going to. So we're glad it's empty because that means it's it's done its job. But it does come back, doesn't it? It does come back and and bite the politicians. And the politicians are awfully sensitive if they're if they're there by the skin of their fingernails. Absolutely. And there is this myth that this stuff is desperately unpopular. And of course, every single time opinion surveys are done, it's shown that actually most people uh, like this stuff because in the cities, most people are public transport users. Uh, but of course, there's always that tiny minority who are furious and a larger minority who don't like it, um, who make a lot of noise and the majority who, oh, good, the bus is faster. Um, I'll get the bus a few more times than I would have done previously gets ignored. Um, but that's yeah, that's where hopefully, I mean, if, we're, if we're looking on the on the positive side of all this, you know, statutory guidance can't be ignored easily. It can be ignored. It can't be ignored easily. And that yeah. creates the time for the virtuous circle to start up. And once that virtuous circle is turning, then it becomes much, much easier. And of course, you, you've you got the experience of, of, of London and TfL, and London you know, is not growing anymore, wasn't before the pandemic. But of course, you had that magical decade when 
you know, you put in the, tri- the priority measures, people used it, people loved it. It it was all about buses in London, you know, um, and it would have been very, very hard to take those measures out politically in those in, in that in that period. Well, I was certainly very proud to be in charge there when we reached the highest number of buses ever in, in London. Um, I slightly regret the fact that, sadly, the curve had started to trend the other way before I retired. But nevertheless, we had completely rejuvenated it. And it was the virtuous circle, the simplicity. It was the bus priority measures. Uh, it was the cheaper fares supported, let's face it, by what's in today's money, 700, 750 million pounds worth of taxpayers' money. But if you believe that buses are the lifeblood for employment, for recreation, for commerce, for education, all that stuff, then it's money well spent because the social costs and the social consequences otherwise uh, are far greater. So I'm, I'm, I was very proud of what we did. And I, I can see the Prime Minister and his team wanting to replicate that across the country. So, so if, I was a, if I was a metro mayor, I, w- I would be delighted, wouldn't I? Yeah, absolutely. And as, as a London taxpayer, I was always extremely happy handing over my slice of my of my of my council tax bill to you to to run your buses and build bus lanes. I never resented it for a, for a split second. And I, I and I and I think one of the interesting things here is the fact that this, hopefully, in some places where these enhanced partnerships start start spinning, will come with more public investment and more more public sector capital. And I think we don't have the problem that we've had previously of this constant, should they be public or should they be private? Because one thing that I've, you know, I've been talking to people, both for the freewheeling podcast and in general, about who should run the buses. And the constant answer I get back, and the trains, by the way, the constant answer I get back is it doesn't bloody matter. What the fundamentals of what makes a difference? You know, I've spoken to so many people who've worked in the private sector, the public sector, the municipal sector. They've worked for everyone, and you know, it's about local leadership and good management, and above all, if the bus can get there faster than the car. And this just unlocks all that. It does, and I agree with you about the ownership. In fact, I would go slightly further and say my experience is, it's always better that the private sector does what it does best, which arguably is about owning assets and mobilizing labor and so on and it's and the public sector should do what it does best which is more about the strategic planning and so on and if, in my experience whenever you cross those cross that borderline you always get unintended consequences so one of the things that i think is tricky for the bus strategy because it's got to establish a new threshold hasn't it between what the operators want to do because it is commercially the right thing to do and what the local authority wants to be done because in its mind, that's what's best for the community. And I, I think it will be all right. And one of the reasons why I think it'll be all right is we very helpfully got this net zero thing at the same time. And as we know, air quality doesn't respect anybody's boundaries, whether it's a bus operator's boundary or a local authority boundary. So therefore, we are all united by this desire to move to net zero. Uh, that net zero thing is done more efficiently in bigger doses. And therefore, we've got quite a helpful... I think, scene being painted here where the places where the bus companies and the local authorities will have to be talking is out of a common purpose on air quality. Uh, and then separate from the air quality, it's about the bargaining, isn't it, about about how much service and how much it's going to cost. And this, so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. Absolutely. And this plan to you know, put in a, a whole, yeah, I've got how many thousands of, of, of zero emission buses, but actually, um, you know, 
it, it maintains the manufacturing base of buses in this country, which is a good thing. But it also um, helps change the narrative because one of my slight nervousnesses of recent years has been that the bus industry will lose its green credentials and the rail industry as well, by the way, um, that you know, you've got Elon Musk, who managed to become the richest man in the world through selling a small number of electric cars, but in the process convince everyone that the future of ecological transport is electric cars. And I personally don't believe that it is. But in the public eye, I've spoken to a lot of people who believe that electric cars, oh, that's that's how we'll solve that one. And conversely, they still see buses as big and diesely and smelly and part of the problem. And I think making a really high profile gesture around electrification of buses and electrification of trains uh, helps reset the balance because I think otherwise I'm I'm, I'm slightly the, the transport industry in the last few years has slightly reminded me of of Jeremy Corbyn um, in the sense that do you remember how Jeremy Corbyn could never see there was a problem with anti-semitism because he so knew that he was the ultimate anti-racist there couldn't be a problem with anti-semitism and in the same way the transport industry has so, has been so confident that it is on the side of the angels when it comes to ecology that uh, it's slightly risked being overtaken by public perceptions thinking something different And i think this might start to address the balance a bit i think so and drifting away from the bus strategy for a minute the other big question yet to be answered is how we're going to replace the 3.8 billion pounds worth of fuel duty which is collected uh, on diesel and petrol because that 3.8 billion as we know doesn't just go to make roads it also does schools hospitals and plenty of other things the government needs to spend its money on and it's going to be a clever trick to replace that 3.8 billion with another sort of tax whilst at the same time moving to net zero electric hydrogen and whatever as quickly as possible i think that's a tricky one i'm not sure any chancellor so far has worked out the answer to that no and i as as you as you may know and may have seen from my blog, I'm I'm passionate about road pricing as something that isn't just the answer, but it's something that has to happen incredibly quickly. And that if there's one sort of wish I have, it's that the industry as a whole would lobby and press and push for road pricing. Because there's this perception that it's unpopular, and again, survey data shows that it isn't, and that it's hard to achieve. But so many policies have been hard to achieve until they were achieved, and then they became absolutely accepted. But the, fuel, the vehicle excise duty and the fuel duty are both linked to fuel and zero emission cars will pay neither. So that money is going to vanish and you can't add a tax. Whereas if you simply substitute out a tax and if you take away a tax that all motorists pay and say, well, actually, only people driving cars in congested urban areas where, well, by the way, there's very good alternatives in the form of all these buses going along these brand new bus lanes um, are, are paying it. And rural voters who tend to vote conservative and tend to need their cars more actually will end up paying a lot less than they would have done in vehicle excise duty and fuel duty. That feels incredibly politically saleable. In many ways, if you ignore the ideology, that's easier politically for a conservative government than a Labour government because of the balance of who will end up paying this new these new sets of taxes compared to the old taxes. And we've seen that this this conservative government isn't bounded by the traditional conservative pro car anti bus buck anti bus and bike ideology. So now really feels like the moment to be going absolutely guns blazing for road pricing. But you know, I look at the CPT website, I look at the RDG website. There's literally nothing about it. And it's like if we're not asking for this, if we're not making the case, well, who is? It's not going to happen without us saying it, is it? 
No, and it was interesting road pricing didn't appear in the bus strategy, which is a pity because if you had started to want to wean the public onto thinking about road pricing as being an inevitability, which you and I know it is, it wouldn't have been a bad place to have trailed it because I think the, uh, the, the there are a number of ways about reducing there are a number of ways about increasing the modal shift towards public transport. And one is making sure the buses go faster and are more reliable, more exciting and cleaner and so on. And the other one is the financial disincentive to drive your car, especially on those journeys where you shouldn't have to. And I uh, I was always fascinated you know, in the earliest stages of road pricing that you'll remember, the thought that you might have the equivalent of an inverse meter like they have in a taxi. So in fact, if you're, if you're traveling along at at road speed and not in any congestion, then the meter is going up quite slowly. But every time you stop in a queue of traffic, the meter starts to go faster and faster because you are the traffic yeah. and you are the congestion. Uh, and I always wondered what the outcome from that might be. Now, I'm sure I'm sure that's too revolutionary because we'd be lucky to get road pricing in at all, never mind one that's inversely proportional to the speed that you're traveling. But I just think um, road pricing is inevitable. I wish it had been in the bus strategy because it would have been a good introduction and it would have just started to open the door on the replacement for fuel duty, which inevitably has to come. So that was a, that was a disappointment for I me in the, in the paper. Very much so. That was the big gap and it's been the big gap all the way through. And it's, some, it, it's either going to have to be done or it, or it won't be. And the risk is, which is why I think we shouldn't be complacent and assume it's it, it's inevitable if we as an industry don't push for it, is that it won't happen. And we'll just have a big tax cut for motorists and basically make it impossible. You know, five years from now, you can't do it because it's just a tax increase and you can't do tax increases. So it, we've got to be doing it. You know, this is a 2021, 22, 23 project. It can't be a 23, 24, 25 project. It's just too late. There's too many people out there driving electric cars, not paying these taxes. And the other thing that the bus strategy, I think, for me, helped about was we're now conflating the coronavirus extra support, the CBSSG, into a longer term funding for bus operators. So that as the coronavirus need starts to decay, it'll broadly be replaced on a pound for pound basis with a similar level of support for what the, the paper describes as more services, more frequent services, better services and cheaper services. Uh, and that's quite heartening because any decent treasury would have wanted us weaned off the CBSSG as quickly as possible. So I think the government's done well to effectively get what was originally a short-term support because of the extraordinary conditions of coronavirus into a longer-term funding stream. I think that's quite clever. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we talked earlier about public-private and the subsidy in London, um, but actually the right place for the funding for buses to come from is the passenger because it's then, A, it, it pays for all the stuff that needs paying for, new drivers, fuel, blah, 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 and B, it, it isolates it from future political impact interference. I've got a, if you come into my house, um, the first thing you'll see um, is a wonderful old Donald Gill poster from 1914 um, from um, whoever ran the buses in London then, London General Omnibus Company, I think. Um, I don't know if you know the poster, but it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's a very witty map of, of London at the time. And the caption is, by paying us your pennies, you go about this, your your business in London, greatest of all cities by the Thames. And it's just beautiful. But that very simple summary, by, going about, by paying us your pennies, you go about your business. You know, fundamentally, that's what this industry is all about. And 
this strategy of making it more attractive to use buses as opposed to subsidizing empty buses is absolutely the right direction of travel, if you pardon the pun. You know, the world we've been in for the last however many years of public funding going to socially necessary buses that largely drive around empty, as opposed to public funding going to putting in place the infrastructure that will enable a bus going to the same place at the same time to be full of people paying for it, that absolutely feels like the right answer. It does. So I was as impressed, I'm sure you were, to see that not only are socially necessary services completely rejuvenated in the definition, because there's now a duty on local authorities to fund the socially necessary services, but actually equally helpfully, economically necessary services as well. And that that is all the things that we've wanted to hear, hasn't it? That this is not just about uh, running services, perhaps in rural areas, late, late, later than the commercial service normally provides. But this is about where the local authority, for any one of a number of strategic policy reasons, whether it's a trading estate, new employment, new school, new hospital, whatever it is, that above and beyond socially necessary, we've got this economically necessary duty. The thing that I was most impressed with in the paper is it's a duty that local authority has a duty to fund those types of services, which I think is great news for the industry. But before we get too positive, I don't want to be too nice to them. Um, the, the there were there were gaps as well, and you mentioned uh, trips to housing estates and um, business parks and that kind of place. And the thing that really stood out for me as not being there was any reference because this is a strategy after all it's about what you're trying what work you're going to be doing in the next x period no reference at all to working with their colleagues over in the communities department on planning and the fact that we're still building housing estates that basically can't be served by buses and we're still building business parks that are so unattractive for bus users when you get there that you'd never take a bus there in a million years and where there's local road network that means that you'd have to serve, could drive around five miles in order to serve two adjacent business parks all of these things are still happening and still being funneled through the planning system and the strategy can't change that and um, you can't write you, that's quite a difficult thing to do but it did feel like the dft was restricting itself to the things within the remit of the dft and a big part of the economics of good bus services are things that they can't control, but they can influence, and they should have set themselves the target to try and influence those things better. Yeah, so and that that interdepartmental chasm exists with planning, it exists with housing, it exists with education, it exists with health. Uh, and how, ma- how many times have we seen the extraordinary ways in which buses are disadvantaged at hospitals? Because... You get hospitals moved to larger sites by the sides of main, main roads for which the diversion off the main road to serve it is a real disbenefit to the through passengers who are not involved in the hospital, whilst it's a convoluted way in and out that could, through planning, could have so easily been reconciled so that the transport for the hospital, ditto for schools, ditto for business parks and all the other things that you mentioned, could have been done so more easily. And what a pity there isn't a duty then that, um, that local authorities and transport providers didn't have to be involved right up the top of the planning timetable. Absolutely. Um, and they did do that for bikes. Um, they Last year, uh, they, they created a new body, um, a, a new statutory body for cycling that has to be consulted in all new planning applications. Um, but that hasn't happened with buses, which is a shame. Yes, you're right. That is a gap, isn't it? That would have been, and that would have been an easy win. Yeah. Because a duty to consult is 
I'm going to say only a duty to consult, but that's to be fair. That's all bus operators wanted was just the chance to be in at the early stages of the of the discussions because they frequently come forward with uh, zero cost uh, refinements to the ideas that make their life so much easier. Well, it's one of those interesting things that I think the government is so used to its role being to decide how money is spent that they've come forward with this strategy. And the headline is three billion pounds, which is fantastic. And please do hand it over. Uh, But um, there's an awful lot that the industry wants and needs that's free. And obviously the big one they've done, which is bus priority. And that's massively um, economically advantageous to the industry because it enables it to pay for itself where previously it would have had to ask for subsidy but things like planning come into that category and of course overwhelmingly things like road pricing which if it happens will cause bus services that are now virtually empty to become profitable um, because if it currently costs you for nothing to drive well yeah, I, I did a quick calculation of how much it costs to drive on a sort of typical bus ride. It's something, it's something like 34 pence or something extraordinary, you know, the, the cost of motoring that, 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 that journey, and it costs you two quid on a bus. Whereas if that becomes four pounds by car and two quid on a bus, uh, that's transformational. And it doesn't cost the government anything. Um, it just It's just reshuffling the existing tax take and tax take that's being lost. And they all, it almost yeah. likes the things that were free to do uh, got lost in the process of simply arguing funds out of the treasury. Yeah. I, I'm very, I'm very keen on this move, of course, towards simpler ticketing and, of course, contactless payments and so on. And that's not just because I'm fascinated by the science, but the great thing about contactless payments for me is that actually the sensitivity to price falls away. So why do I, why do I, as a, as a sophisticated purchaser, pay two pounds ninety five for a cup of coffee on the station in the morning? Well, it's because I don't really know it costs two ninety five because I touch my card. And it's buried in my credit card statement with a thousand other transactions. And so the so frankly, if tomorrow it's three pounds and the day after it's three oh five, I won't actually notice because the pain of paying for it, uh, all those thresholds, whether you're breaking into a five pound note or a ten pound note, whatever it is, fall away completely. So I think the big step forward on contactless is that the market is probably going to be less price sensitive. And I think that's a good thing because there are some ridiculous conversations had about small incremental increases in public transport fares, uh, which are completely fallacious. Uh, And I just hope we can go the way of uh, coffee shops and fast food outlets and other places so that that this this headline price business is no longer the the stick that we get beaten with unnecessarily, I think, in my view. Absolutely. And yeah, the TfL experience here is overwhelming. I spent about four years of my life I'm never going to get back attempting to extend the contactless zone out along the Chiltern line and when I was at Chiltern Railways and in you know, painful years of negotiations between Chiltern Railways, DFT and TfL and finally we gave up and never, never made it happen it was just the industry defeated us but the reason I wanted to do that was exactly that thing that people stop knowing how much they're spending um, or stop caring how much they're spending I mean you know, uh, the National Rail Network constantly gets beaten up about its ticket prices and it all being too damn complicated. Um, and the reason is not that it's complicated. It is complicated. The reason is that people are forced to try and understand it. Whereas, no, no, no criticism of TfL, but the TfL pricing structure is bonkers. Um, it's because it's this bizarre interweaving of the TfL and national rail ticket pricing structure. Half the train journeys in the country are priced by in London are priced by TfL. Half, the other half are priced by the various train companies. You can cross between the two without having any idea. You 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 cross from a journey in London that involves train and tube, and you might as well be pulling a number out of a tombola for how much you're actually going to end up paying. 
But no one cares. No one cares because it's all roughly about what I would have expected. If you see four pounds on your thing at the end of the day and it would have been three pounds 30 or it would have been four pounds 30, it all feels about right. And you know, no, I, I literally don't think I've heard anyone complain about transport for London's ticketing complexity since they stopped asking people to think about it. And if the bus industry can get to the same place, that is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it would be, and uh, frankly, we need to embrace it. Uh, we, it's simple for passengers to use. Uh, as I say, the price sensitivity is diminished. Of, of course, there's one or two people taking a slice of this transaction as it works its way through, but it's a hell of a sight cheaper than counting, keeping safe, transporting and banking coin, which is what we used to do. Um, now, the other one that was fascinating, you talked about uh, trying to get into the um, oyster and contactless zone around the perimeter, because it was back in the 1960s that when the what's now the Greater London Boundary was being consulted upon, that one of the reasons why that boundary is so arbitrary is that people on the fringes made strong cases to government about being in or out of London, and some people wanted to be part of London, and others uh, certainly didn't, which is why, of course, there's that, there's that finger of the Greater London area that sticks out near, near Epsom, because a whole load of people who live much nearer London than there uh, wanted to be in Surrey, uh, whereas other people in other parts of um, the area wanted to be in London. So we have this odd-shaped boundary. Well, of course, we couldn't have predicted at the time, but I bet all the people who had the chance to be in London and therefore benefit from London's transport services, fares, frequencies and intensive operation who, who voted to stay in Surrey really wish they might have been in London because they would have had the benefit of what we now have uh, and will have had it for so long. So, uh, of course, you can't predict those things in advance, but I, I always smile when we hear about that. And in fact, only this week, somebody was saying to me that, uh, uh, how, how the people of St Albans are desperately upset they're not inside the London fair zone because it only goes as far as Elstree and Boreham Wood. And I say, well, actually, there was a time when that bit of Hertfordshire had the chance to be in London if it wanted to be, and it chose not to be. So there you go. In brackets, I, I, I'm always fascinated by this exact thing, which still exists. I live in Walthamstow, um, and there's a sliver of Epping Forest close to where we live that's about, I mean, it's literally a matter of hundreds of yards wide, but it, it is a total cultural boundary. On this side of that sliver of Epping Forest, Walthamstow absolutely identifies as London and we consider ourselves to be Londoners um, and we'd probably consider ourselves inner city Londoners at the complete, um, uh, completely overpowering all geography or rational analysis. Cross that back finger of Epping Forest and you are into Wanstead and South Woodford, both of which consider themselves to be Essex and they have a local magazine called South Essex Life, very South Essex because they haven't been in Essex since 1964. <laughs> and of course that other useless measure of the boundary of Greater London, the M25, which is entirely pointless because there's a huge a huge chunk of land inside the M25 that is not inside Greater London, yet there's a bit of Greater London outside the M25 at South Ockenden. So the M25, which of course is far too recent a creation to be considered any sort of London boundary. Uh, and and I just, uh, it's one of the great, I, I guess it's one of the great n nice things about uh, how different London is. And boroughs like Havering, which are huge, and as you allude to, is more like Essex than London and places like Southwark, which is so small that uh, you only have to cross the road a couple of times and you've left it. So that's those local authority boundaries, I think, are replicated across 
the country. And again, I think we'll see some unevenness in the bus strategy, won't we, due to the arbitrary nature of the local authority boundaries. But one of the good things in the strategy is that neighbouring local authorities can band together uh, and produce a plan for the contiguous boroughs uh, and they can have one bus service improvement plan and they can have one planning and delivery function. So I thought that, that was a very astute thing to put in the strategy. The unfortunate thing, of course, is that the strategy has these, I mean, really, and let's face it, there's somewhat crazy timelines in there. I mean, we've got local authorities who have no bus function whatsoever. They've got to work out whether they're doing their own thing or whether they're doing it in partnership with their neighbours. They've got to recruit. Um, in many cases, the operator has got to recruit as well. They've got to get an understanding of the local issues and what needs to be done and what the, the project should be. Um, they've got to get all this done by October. Well, I've got to get it done by goodness knows when in order to publish a local bus improvement plan by October and have a statutory. These aren't voluntary partnerships. You know, the, the, your, the funding stream is cut off. It's not a statutory partnership in place by April next year. And you know, if you're Brighton, this, this does not feel difficult. Uh, but there are many parts of the country where it does. And I slightly wish that the timeline had been a bit more realistic because it feels like if you have to get it done in, in order to avoid losing money, well, you'll get it bloody done, won't you? But it might not be very good. Uh, and it, if, if a bit more time had been given, we might have got it done and got it done good, which would have been even better. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Some, some of those timelines are absolutely heroic. I suppose we mustn't complain, though, because at least it's got people to get a wriggle on. At least they can't spend a year thinking about it. They've got to, they've got to get cracking. And, uh, and clearly, the government's got a view to its own timetable because, you know, there's a general election in 2024. Goodness. So, so clearly, it wants everybody to get a wriggle on. It wants the public to see some of these improvements starting to bubble through before we get to get to the general election doesn't it so so i i get it but all i can say is that it'll just be a heyday for freelance consultants <laughs> which i humbly apologize oh if i if i know any of those i'll um yeah i'll, I'll, I'll tip them off yeah. might be a no hey well look that's been great uh catching up with that because uh everybody's take on the bus strategy is is different so i'm really pleased we had this conversation because that's helped prove that i'm not entirely on a limb in terms of my reaction to it and uh, and that I'm not the only one surprised by how well it seems to have gone down across the piece. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be really interesting to see. Come back in a few, let's, let, let's put a note to the diary to come back in a couple of years time um, and see, has the money turned up? Have the plans been written? And how many hundreds of miles of bus lanes have been built? That's a, that's a brilliant challenge. What, what a great plan. Well, thank you very much indeed to Leon Daniels for joining me and thank you to you for listening. That concludes this special extra edition of the Freewheeling Podcast, which means I'll be back in just two days' time with Corinne Mully from the University of Sydney. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this Freewheeling Podcast or any of the others in the series so far, please do jump onto the Apple Store and give us a rate and review. See you very soon. Bye.